it's not necessarily a sexy answer, but I would say gather the experiences or the skill sets you might need. And it really makes not just doing what we do as an entrepreneur easier, but it also, I think, accelerates your growth because you know the rules and you kind of have that foundation too. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another episode of Predicting the Turn. Today, we sit down with Sabina Lada, who is the founder and CEO of Doe. Sabina, welcome to the show. Ah, thanks for having me. Well, I want to start with kind of a description of what the business really is, because you guys have a really unique positioning in the market. So can you tell me about Doe as a starting point? Yeah, uh, we're very different than when we when we initially launched, but now we're um, a better for you snacks platform. We have a line of vegan and gluten free cookie doughs that we're most known for and is the core of our business currently. And we've expanded um, since launch into better for you donuts and better a better for you version of Nutella. Awesome. So let's start with that cookie dough. What led you to launch a business around edible cookie dough? It's kind of funny because I, if you, if you had asked me if I have an insane passion for something like cookie dough, I wouldn't exactly say that. Like I, I will say I have had a sweet tooth since, I don't know, right out the womb, probably. I, I have a dessert after every meal. I have a breakfast dessert. I have a lunch dessert. I have a dinner dessert. And I'm also into health and wellness and, you know, have, have grown into that um, over the years. So really, I was looking for something that would satisfy my sweet tooth, but would still, you know, abide by some of the the lifestyle choices that I want, want to live by. And there was something that, you know, I, I used to make all the time, which was this version of cookie dough. And it would be, you know, you could eat one scoop, you could eat three scoops, you could put it back in the fridge. It was an easy snack or sweet treat. So during the pandemic, when when I had this concept around healthy indulgences and, and kind of looked at the category overall, Pillsbury and Nestle own, you know, the majority of it. It was a place that was not only ripe for disruption, but a place that I have an interest in and kind of had something in the back of my head developed already. And then, so with that in mind, you recently expanded into broadening and not just being a dough company, but being something that was really across the confection space. What led you into donut holes holes and then drip? Yeah, I love that you say confection. I've been calling it snack-fection because there's, uh, it's funny, women are two and a half times more likely to crave something sweet. And often by society, we are, sweet things are thought of as desserts, but really sweet snacks uh, is a large and growing category. So, you know, there were, I will say, I'm actually sitting next to the whiteboard where we were brainstorming where we launch into next. The goal with launching into new categories early on was so that we don't just get pegged as a cookie dough company. So that was important to me. A lot of my learnings from Frito-Lay and and Big CPG played a role there. Um, So I knew we wanted to launch something pretty early and and test and learn on direct-to-consumer. But really it was, okay, where, where are their big meaty categories? Sweet snacks, breakfast, dessert obviously is one that we play in. And then where are there white spaces that we have a right to win? So, you know, there are a couple of different product value props that we have and um, and we have our, our, you know, messaging hierarchy and how we want the consumer to feel when she sees and consumes our product. So that's kind of the methodology we use to get to those two specific product lines. But the biggest gating factor was 
have they been disrupted yet? Um, and if the answer was no, a la Donuts, right, Hostess and Entenmann's being the two biggest players, um, then that was, you know, a category that we we thought we had a right to win in. So related to that, you know, as a former brand manager for Frito, you understand that, you know, when you launch a new product, if it's going outside your category, you know, that creates complexities for traditional retail and other places where it's a new buyer, new this, new that. Yeah. You know, how did you think about that approach as you launched into these categories that were very different places of the store as you move beyond D to C? Yeah. So they actually ended up being, we configured them such that they would be in the same place to start. Because to your point, you don't want the buyer to, you don't have three buyers across three categories, especially at that size. Um, it's just very difficult to manage. And then, you know, by the way, you're managing a direct to consumer business in addition to the retail business. So our donuts actually being refrigerated, one, it helped us keep the preservatives out and it helped us increase the shelf life and it allowed us to use specific ingredients like our glaze that are super, I don't want to use the word addicting because I, I don't like that word, but um, they're, we call we used to call it more-ish when I was at Frito-Lay, M-O-R-E-I-S-H. It makes you want to have more. So it allowed us to use different ingredients like that too, that increase the craveability of the product. So we actually went with refrigeration for that donuts product. And then our drip can actually be both refrigerated, it functions as a spread. And then at room temp, it's more of a drizzle. So that kind of versatility is interesting. But when it is in retail, it's more of a food service product. But what it, when it is in retail, we try to merchandise it next to our cookie dough and our donuts. So you have that kind of classic brand block that you learned about in Big CPG. Love that as a strategy. How'd you convince the buyer to be able to add something like a donut hole that traditionally they might not have sold in that part of the store and not get in trouble with their other, you know, co-buyer, if you will? Yeah, I mean, the dairy. So typically we're in the dairy or the refrigerated baked goods set. And they, I, I love the buyers there because they are chomping at the bit for innovation. Whereas, like, you know, maybe a center store cookies buyer is flooded. I mean, there are a ton of center store, center store cookie brands. You have to really be unique to even get your foot in the door or get a buyer conversation. For dairy, you know, there's a lot of, it, typically the yogurt sit there. There's a lot of jello. There's pudding. So they don't, it's funny when I, this is a little bit of a tangent, but when I did Target's Accelerator program in my deck, I had what the set looked like. And this was two years ago, so it's changed now. But this set at the time, I took a photo of my local Target and I put it in the deck was Pillsbury Crescent Rolls, Jell-O, Nestle Toll House, and then regular Pillsbury cookie dough. And so that, like, that's not a ton of innovation. There's, of course, flavor innovation within those brands, but not a ton of innovation and better for you. So when we were able to present both on the cookie dough side and the donut side, a better for you proposition that actually tastes good and is, you know, is bringing in this millennial and Gen Z consumer the dairy buyers just, they loved it. And so that was, I will say surprisingly has taken a little bit less convincing um, maybe than other categories because of, you know, the, the crave of, craving of innovation, if you will, in that category. So you've mentioned a few times, you know, D to C, then food service, then retail like Target. Yeah. How's the business split between those three kind of channels? Um, at the end of this year, it'll be a 25% food service, and then D to C and retail will be about even. And then next year, re retail will really start to take over because we have a couple of big launches nationally in Q1. The, the future of the business 
I will say like the core of the business, call it five years from now, will be retail, but food service will, I think will remain important. And D2C for, you know, in my vision will be more of a data collecting mechanism and more of a marketing mechanism. That's where we do our fun collabs with influencers. That's where, you know, we have our splashy marketing campaigns and we have a really cult social media following. And so D2C, I think, remains important in figuring out what to take to retail, but really the the, the business scales at retail. So when you think about scaling that business and looking at those different channels, um, will that evolve how you're thinking about those? So in other words, will you bring more limited edition into retail or do you maintain kind of the current strategy that you just outlined? No, I mean, I love that question because our ability to innovate on flavor, I mean, our, our ability to innovate in general, I think, but our ability to innovate on flavor is very strong and we can do it efficiently and we can understand what consumers want. And we've killed flavors based on D2C data, right? Or we'll take flavors that did really well, like s'mores, for example, and we'll take them to Sprout saying, hey, do you want to do a limited edition flavor for us? So now we have this kind of cycle going with our, our bigger partners, where if they have an opportunity to do an in and out, or if they you know want to collab on a flavor with us and kind of build one, you know, Whole Foods wants to do it with us for summer of next year, we have the ability to do that. And so they actually think it's fascinating and amazing that we can iterate that that quickly. And they've uh, essentially started coming to us with ideas as well. So the goal would be, to, to answer your question, the goal would be to start doing these kind of limited edition drops in retail as well more consistently because we find that the consumer, I mean, Gen Z and millennials, I think act act similarly in this way. They like that flavor innovation and they, they need brands to keep things spicy and, you know, they'll still buy their chocolate chip cookie dough or their core, you know, brownie flavor. But once you add in a s'mores, they're certainly increasing their basket size and buying that second flavor. And it works similar. I worked on potato chips previously. It works similarly to potato chips, where if you're a sea salt and vinegar person, or if you're, um, you know, a classic salt person, you might buy that regularly. But then when we launch a pepperoncini or a jalapeno or a sriracha flavor, you'll probably pick that up too if it's an in and out. So um, it's just a way to, I think, get it more involved with the consumer, but also increase basket size for the retailer. Talent is a big part of predicting the turn. And as we talk about talent, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Hunt Club. Imagine the power of the best marketers in the world helping you to find your next marketing leader. That's the power of Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of talent company that powers the network of experts, connectors, and business leaders to help you find the best talent. Let's face it, recruiting hasn't changed with the times. Hunt Club is changing the recruiting game by leveraging technology and crowdsource referrals to find you the best people possible for your company. Stop paying job boards that don't work or recruiting firms that recycle the same active candidates. Partner with Hunt Club. So diving in on that basket size a little bit more, you know, it's it's always the holy grail of big CPGs, whether that's Frito-Lay or Procter Gamble or Nestle. Just because you love one category doesn't mean you cross over to that, you know, another category under that same brand at all times. How yeah. do you think about the cross sell and what are you finding is the different behavior now that you have three very distinct products that somebody might be their first you know, point of market entry for you? Yeah. So actually, it's funny. We were just chatting with our agency this morning about what products work well for retail or sorry, work well for acquisition versus repeat. So our cookie dough 
kills it when it comes to acquisition. So uh, things like Meta or having influencer partnerships, our cookie dough is almost like the gateway into the brand. But and there's there's an element of kind of virality to it as well. But the most repeated product for us is actually our donuts. And so there's we're kind of like learning that as we go a little bit on direct to consumer. But it is it, it's it's more of versus having thinking about it as distinct categories of cookie dough, donuts, and and drip. It's more how do we get involved with different parts of her day. So if you think about day parting and and when you might eat a sweet snack, there's a couple of different different day parts for all of these categories. So for our drip, for example, you might eat it on your granola in the morning for breakfast. You might have it as a snack on your yogurt in the afternoon. Or if you're eating fruit for dessert, you know, you might drizzle some some drip on it for, for dessert. So we kind of got obsessed with when we were innovating, we got, got obsessed with this idea of day parting of how do we kind of infiltrate different parts of her day such that, of course, she's going to eat more of the product, but we can actually kind of fit in as a snack throughout versus, you know, it's it's ice cream. She's only eating it at night, you know, after dinner. Same with donuts, right? Like we we have one of our biggest um, influencer partnerships is with Alex Snodgrass from The Defined Dish. And she, um, you know, always posts eating a couple of donuts for donut holes for breakfast with her coffee because she doesn't like to eat a huge, huge breakfast. And, you know, she, she consumes it that way. But then we see in our NPS, it's, the pick it's literally the pick me up snack um that a lot of our consumers have as an after after lunch or kind of like mid afternoon snack so this this idea of day parting just became really important to us and rather than looking at it as categories we kind of try to figure out what role does this food group play throughout the day one of the things you mentioned earlier is you have this goal of really becoming this better for you version of something like nestle when you think about that as a goal how do you bring that vision to life and where where do you start and where do you go from there? I know it is. It's such a lofty goal, huh? <laughs> when, when you say it, uh, when I say it, I, I've said it a bunch of times, but when you say it, I'm like, oh, wow, that is pretty lofty. But it's, I think because I've, I've bitten it off in such bite-sized increments versus, you know, doing it all at once. Like I have very much, because my most recent experience was in venture capital and at a venture studio at M13, I really really latched on to this testing and learning process. And I I really am non-committal with a lot of our product lines, our flavors, even how we do things internally. So I'm able to, to, for lack of better words, kill my own babies. And I think that helps when you have a vision so big because you you essentially bite things off in increments. And if they work, then great, you accelerate them. And if they don't, and you're okay parting ways with them, it makes doing this whole startup thing a lot easier because you're not so wed to an idea. So, you know, I think we've learned along the way, whether that's flavors or pricing or how our team is structured with direct-to-consumer and retail, we've seen what what does ladder up to the vision and what doesn't. And, you know, what doesn't, we're okay kind of parting ways with. And I think that's probably a bit of our superpower is that we think almost, you know, we had the conversation a little bit earlier about that CPGs are not tech companies, but we almost have that thought process of um, agility and, you know, I would say rethinking how traditional CPG is done. And we bring that to CPG. Come from a background with Frito-Lay and, you know, these amazing places that have taught the art of marketing. Mm -hmm. So when you think about launching donut holes in particular, 
how have you really thought about the role of marketing and other vehicles for driving that habit change and that change of perception that donuts can actually be, if not healthy, healthier with uh, the right approach to it? Mm hmm. I'm obsessed with big CPG marketing, by the way. Like I, I attribute, we get a lot of credit uh, on Doe and our marketing team is really, really stellar. Like we, we get a lot of credit on, on how we run campaigns and kind of the virality of them. But I truly believe that big CPG just, it, they do it so incredibly well. And having that gold standard training, like I, I attribute all of it to that, to them, obviously a little bit more of a modern spin with more of like a social and influencer approach. But I think that the way you convince consumers is going deep into, this is, this goes back to big CPG, going deep into their consumer insights and understanding what it actually is that they want, almost figuring out what is that emotional territory? Like there's a, there's always a functional value prop of your product, right? It's delicious. You know, it's better for me. It's, you know, maybe it's gluten-free, it's snack sized, it's portion control. There's, there's those kind of value props at the product level. And then there's, this emotional territory that you get into, we call ours cloud nine. And the reason we call it that is because when she consumes the product, and I say she intentionally, but when she when she consumes the product, she not only feels good about what she's consuming because there's, you know, a relief of endorphins, uh, release of endorphins when you have something sweet and it tastes good and it makes you feel good. But she also has this removal of guilt that we've been taught our entire lives is associated with things like sweets and cookies and donuts and Nutella and things that you're just not supposed to eat. And so it's it's getting like a little bit existential, but we try to tap into this consumer insight or this emotional territory of cloud nine of how do we make her feel really good about what she's consuming and shifting from kind of like this diet obsessed to a little bit more you know, wellness oriented um, to just make us feel and be our best selves. So um, we try to make that a little less overwhelming than maybe a lot of other wellness brands, but um, it, it's trying to kind of marry the the comfort food or the indulgence with health. With that in mind, what's next for Doe? Oh, what's next? A lot of retail launches. So a, a lot of scale um, is coming up and, you know, we've, we've been, we've always had an eye, like you said, on Omnichannel, but really we're starting in in Q1 of 2024 we're really starting our big national launches and those those are throughout the year so i would love for us to to become a household name i think we've done an, a great job with our gen z and millennial digitally savvy consumer but there's so many you know parts of the country and other demographics that we haven't reached yet so you know the vision would be to to start scaling into retail and and you know slowly start to become a little bit more of a household name earlier in the conversation you mentioned you know you went through the target accelerator you spent time at m13 and mm-hmm. you know a mention of the the change that's happening with tech and cpg you know if you're giving advice to a found, a future founder somebody that has this idea wants to really go change your category with consumer what advice are you giving to them today uh, that's interesting because I, I probably, I come at it with a, a little bit more of like an experienced lens. So I did big CPG. I was at McKinsey for a few years and focused on digital 
And then I was in venture capital at a venture studio. So I have a little bit of the trifecta of experience. I think a lot of the marketing of being a founder is being young and just like breaking things and, you know, starting when you're 22 or 25 or whatever it is, right? And it's glamorized a little bit, whereas I actually really valued my experiences and it allowed me to learn the rules so I can break them. So that's not to say that we don't break the rules. You know, it's we actually do all the time, but you have to know them and how they work. And so I actually value, you know, telling founders uh, to get experience and, you know, not necessarily in their categories, but understanding what skill sets they want to build. Like at McKinsey, I didn't work in CPG. I did I did consumer, but not specifically. I, did, I had one client that was a CPG client. Um, but McKinsey taught me how to think and it taught me how to problem solve and it taught me how to write a strategy. And that experience, it was pivotal to, to what I'm doing today. So I will say it's not necessarily a sexy answer, but I would say gather the experiences or the skill sets you might need. And it really makes not just doing what we do as an entrepreneur easier, but it also, I think, accelerates your growth because, you know, you're, you're able, you, you know, the rules and you kind of have that foundation too. Well, I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time and sharing your journey of all the amazing things that you've built with Doe. Of course. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.